Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So um, today I'll be talking to somebody who is either kind of a legend to you or somebody who I have to explain to you who that person is. Or it could be something in between, too. Andre Gregory uh, is a very, very well-known and very accomplished actor and director. If you don't know much about him, you might at least know that there's a movie called My Dinner with Andre. He plays Andre, uh, although not exactly himself in the movie, uh, as we will discuss. Anyway, opposite Wallace Shawn in that one. We have a lot to talk about with him. He's uh, now published a memoir, which he insists, even in the title, is not a memoir. Uh, and there's a lot of other creative and very slippery concepts of identity and stuff like that. I'm not really selling this very well, but it's going to be a good interview on the other side of the news. Hi. So um, to begin with, I have to tell you a few things. One of them is I'm not quite sure when the show is going to air. I'm reasonably sure what day it is today. I'm pretty sure it's Wednesday the 13th, although don't hold me to that. Uh, But because, in fact, the country is convulsed right now with uh, a movement towards impeachment, uh, we're not live, which was the original plan. And we will definitely get this show on the air anyway, but I don't know when it will be. And so if we say things on the show that seem mildly out of date or as if we just didn't understand things that had happened recently, that's because they hadn't happened yet. I'll also say, you know, I never get stage fright doing this show. I've been doing these things for so long. I have a little bit of stage fright today. I think it might be because Andre Gregory is, I think maybe I wish I were Andre Gregory or the sort of person that Andre Gregory uh, is. Uh, He is our guest today. He is an actor, writer, director, teacher, painter, seeker, spiritual seeker, learner, we are told in his new book. Uh, his new book is This Is Not My Memoir, uh, and so much more to say. But first of all, Andre Gregory, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. I'm not sure you should want to be me because <laughs> I'm already 86 years old. I, well, I mean, of how course, old are you? I'm 66 years old, and I think, you know, getting to be 86 years old is good. It's, it is far better than the alternative. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> So um, we should say, I should tell you, you and I go way back. You just don't know it. Uh-oh. So in 1973, as a Callow Yale sophomore, dragged there by a Sarah Lawrence a girl that I was dating, I saw Endgame, uh, your production of Endgame. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, why do you say, oh, my God, just because it's so old? Or is there some uh, way no, that you're reacting? No, because it was a big event in yeah. my creative life in the sense that Larry Pine was supposed to perform Clove in the production, Mm -hmm. and he was in a surly mood and refused to do it. So I had to learn the role and rehearse the role, and I so enjoyed performing the role that it really began my life as an actor. There would have been no John the Baptist in The Last Temptation (laughs) of Christ, I guess there would have been no Andre and my dinner with Andre. So 
that that performance was incredibly important in my life. So I'm delighted you saw it. I, I hope you like my work. I, I did. I mean, the number of things that I've seen and done and experienced in between then and now that I cannot retrieve from my memory is is epic. But I do remember quite a lot about that production. And I think in many ways, it might have been the first piece of theater I saw that really kind of lit up my brain. I, I mean, I think previously in high school, I saw a touring production of Pinter's Homecoming, which was so viscerally assaulting that I actually got sick to my stomach. That probably was my, my first oh, really I intense guess. experience of theater. But this was very different. What were you going to say? I, get, I was going to say I can see that you're a great audience. <laughs> well, there was there is, I think, something about that production uh, of Endgame where uh, that I can connect to all of the stuff that's in the book. I, well, I should say that this book... It's a short book, and it's kind of set up in a somewhat epigrammatic way. But there, if you were the kind of person who underlined books, which actually Andre Gregory is, at least in the case of Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller, you'd just be, uh, you'd be underlining stuff on every page because they're just these things that kind of jump oh, out. Bless um, you. No, it's really you're not true, only though. You're a great audience. You're a great <laughs> reading public. Yes. Well, I mean, I'm a gratifying audience and reader. Maybe not great. So um, I've lost where I was. Oh, you know, I, I mean, I, I think when I was watching your production of Endgame and we should say, I mean, like basically every Beckett production is going to be lean and spare in a certain way. But I think I was also seeing this is an attempt to be creative in a really pure way, maybe without much reference to anything else that might have preceded it. I mean, I, I sort of sense that in things that you say, things that you write, that a lot of what you've done is to say, how can we get into some kind of creative state that isn't simply building on and making reference to things that have come before? I, I don't know. Right. Is that a fair assessment? I would say so, yeah. I was, I was also going to say about Endgame itself. I don't know how many people listening to this have actually read the play. I think it's the one of the great masterpieces of the 20th century. And Beckett wrote it for a very interesting reason. He felt that theater after Auschwitz was obscene, but he wanted to write this play. And this was Beckett's answer to how in the age of Auschwitz, do you do theater that isn't obscene? And I have to say, the play is probably the ultimate lockdown play. If you want to read a great <laughs> play about lockdown, that's Beckett's Endgame. There's sort of lockdowns within lockdowns because yeah. Nag and Nell are locked down in a completely different way, I think. Well, we can't spend the whole time talking about a 1970s reproduction of Endgame. Although I will say that the person who brought me there, I, was, I didn't know nothing about nothing. And I was uh, dating this girl from Sarah Lawrence, Mary Pilati, she brought me there. And then she's actually the first person to really break my heart later on. And, and oh, um, but yeah, I, you know, always, yeah. always one of those. Well, I mean, I think the point, one of the points you make in the book is you can't become human until you've experienced all of those negative things. You can't really fully, you know, you talk near the end of the book uh, about how, you know, you really hadn't become a complete person until you had experienced this horrible tragedy of your wife, Chiquita. You you don't know empathy, really, until you suffer. Yeah, I think that's true. And 
connected to that, as you obviously saw in the book, I don't believe there's any such thing as failure. I think that everything leads to something else. I had a friend who was left by his boyfriend and he was heartbroken. And I said, you know, in 10 years, you'll look back on this and laugh. You'll think of it as a funny story. Well, he felt like kicking me in the face, but there was some truth to it. Everything that happens leads to something else, I feel. But I think we're also very afraid of that failure, not only in our personal lives, but when we try to create things too. There's, this is something that I think our show, this show that we do, we've kind of lost this a little bit because of lockdown, because we're not in each other's company anymore. But for years I've been saying to my producers, if we don't drive this thing into a bridge abutment from time to time, that's not good. We should really have disastrous shows because that means we're trying to do things that we don't know how to do. And that's good. But I I think the human instinct and and the commercial instinct behind art and, and its role in entertainment is the opposite, right? You, you're supposed to avoid failure at all costs. Well, yeah, that's what the culture teaches. But my wife, Cindy, talks about having attended a lecture of some marvelous woman painter. And all that artist showed in her two hours was paintings that had not succeeded <laughs> because they lead to something. We mm. have to have, we have to have faith in that. You know, right. one, one of the, one of the things, I don't know if I say this in before and after dinner, but one of the interesting things about reaching my more than ripe old age is you look back on life and you realize that everything awful that happened to you did in fact lead to something else in mm-hmm. most cases. Absolutely. Well, we have to talk about, you know, probably the thing you're the most famous for, although there's some contenders here, but you describe actually the making of this particular work in the book. And and boy, talk about courting failure. You you have, you and, and Wallace Shawn have this idea of wanting to do something that is sort of initially maybe going to be a set of conversations and then it kind of evolves and evolves. But basically you're working on the piece that's going to become my dinner with Andre and all the people that you try to raise money from tell you sometimes in rather coarse and vulgar terms that they have, they don't even know what you're talking about and why in the world would they put money into something like this? Maybe you can say a little bit more about this. I mean, people might be surprised because the work in its own way is kind of iconic now, but nobody wanted any part of it. I remember dragging my father to invest $500 in the movie. And after he wrote out a check to the producer and we were leaving the office. He said, I will never forgive you for this. <laughs> uh, and there were only two people in the world who read the script and believed in it. And, of course, when we opened the film, all the reviews were absolutely disastrous. But I have, I have to say that one of the things that I enjoyed in writing Uh, this is not my memoir, Um, was the fact that I've always loved uh, movies, books, or plays about putting on a play, the (laughs) backstage 
reality of mm. what it is like to create something for the theater or something for film. And I think there's some wonderful stories in the book about the making of my dinner with Andre. There absolutely are. But it kind of begins with Wallace Shawn saying to you, and he's, I think, about 10 years your junior, and he says something like, I, I know what you're going through right now, and I don't want to go through it when I'm your age. So we have to do this thing. We have to do these conversations. What is he talking about at that point when he says, I know what you're going through right now? Well, he, he knew that the theater had left me, or I had left the theater. He knew that I couldn't get a job. He knew that I was a desperado. He could see one of his favorite theater people up against a wall, and he simply didn't want that to happen to him when he was my age. So he suggested I tell him all these stories about being buried alive in Montauk and so on, so that he might learn a lesson from them, namely what I don't want to do when I'm Andre's age. I have like could ask five questions about that, but let me ask one. One of the things you describe in the book is, first of all, I think doing it theatrically in London, doing it kind of just for a, an audience and of very theatrical people and kind of having stony silence and, and ominous rustling at the beginning and then just waves of laughter. And then there's another presentation of it somewhere where, yeah, same kind of thing. Ten to tell you right. Yeah. It was tell you right. Okay. Yeah. And then people just, so, so I watched it again last night with my dog, Declan, who was watching it for the first time. He was mainly interested in the quail and how you get those and whether you can <laughs> eat them. But, um, yeah. but I was trying to sort of pinpoint, like, what do you think that the, the turn is there? What is it that people start laughing at when they start laughing? Well, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't really know. It's sometime <laughs> in the first third of the movie. Mm -hmm. But I can't remember specifically what. I mean, there's a way in which Andre, and we should say, I, 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 you kind of point this out in the book, Andre is you and also not you. He's a, kind of a right. variation on a theme of you. And, and there's a way in which all of his experiences, I mean, and, and the character of Wallace Shawn, played by Wallace Shawn, is somebody who's his life's a little bit humdrum and he's having trouble, you know, making ends meet. And he winds up meeting you at this kind of enchanting looking restaurant. And, and you've just had all these experiences that you, the character can't shut up about. You just like, going on and, on. and I keep oh, sort I'm of, I keep watching the cuts. I think maybe the first laugh comes from here's poor Wallace Sean, who thinks that his life is just kind of this, you know, tepid bowl of oatmeal. And there are you flying all over the world and, you know, staying up all night in forests in Poland, dancing around in a beehive. I mean, it just, in a, in a way, it might be the contrast. Well, the humor was absolutely essential to the movie because if, well, you may have sensed that watching the movie so recently, it is from beginning to end an indictment of out of control capitalism mm -hmm. and a warning about the possibility of fascism approaching when you go to sleep as I feel many Americans did go to sleep and let Trump come to power. So that has to be leavened with humor 
So I think in the film, there's a very nice mixture of darkness and light, as I hope there is in the book itself. Well, there, there definitely is. The, the book, you, I laugh out loud a lot, and then I shake my head a lot. I can back that up. Let's hear a little bit of it for people who haven't watched the movie uh, in a while. I don't have to tell you whose voices you're hearing, because there are basically only two voices uh, in the movie. But yes, here's Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn. You know, I really wonder if people such as myself are really not Albert Speer, Wally. No? Hitler's architect, Albert Speer? Huh? No, I've been thinking a lot about him recently because uh, I think I am Spear. And I think it's time that I was caught and tried the way he was. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, I mean, you know, he was a very cultivated man, an architect, an artist, you know, so he thought the ordinary rules of life didn't apply to him either. I mean, I really feel that everything I've done is horrific. Just horrific. But why? You see... See, I've seen a lot of death in the last few years, Wally. And there's one thing that's for sure about death. You do it alone, you see. That seems quite certain, you see. That I've seen. That the people around your bed mean nothing. Your reviews mean nothing. Whatever it is, you do it alone. And so the question is, when I get on my deathbed, what kind of a person am I going to be? And I'm just very dubious about the kind of person who would have lived his life those last few years the way I did. Just react to that. As you hear it now, you've heard it dozens, hundreds of times. What do you hear right now? Well... What I hear right now is that something I think about before, you know, about this is not my memoir, is there are many themes in it. And one of the themes, which I think is important, is how do you prepare for the end of your life? How do you deal with the fear, the inevitability that the Grim Reaper is coming. So when the Andre character talks about death, I was much younger at the time, of course. So now, having written this in my mid-80s, there is more that I think is helpful and comforting to people who are getting on in years, even though there's a big emphasis in the book on the ferocious intensity of youth. That's what comes to mind. The other thing that comes to mind for me listening to it is the beginning part of that conversation where you're talking about, you know, being Albert Speer or having an Albert Speer inside of you. And and I think about that too, just in the sense that it doesn't appear that we for 10 minutes since the end of World War II have learned many of the lessons. I mean, in other words, you know, even very basic on the nose for Albert Speer lessons, people continue to build these kind of over grandiose things, these things in which sort of, you know, ego and ambition are kind of stretched across girders. And that each of us maybe does contain a little bit of an Albert Speer. But when you were saying that, when, when, you, when you and Sean were working at that in the movie, what, what were you thinking? Well, I was thinking exactly that. You know, there was a great Jungian analyst, an Englishman, who in 1938, I think, did an analysis of the German family. And from that, he concluded, this was not too radical, he concluded that there would be war, a little bit more radical. He concluded 
when war would come, the mighty nation of Germany would lose it. But most radical of all was the last sentence of his book. He said, when the war is over, there will be a tendency to punish the Germans as if the evil of Nazism was specific only to Germany itself and not a disease of the whole West. If they do that, like a bumblebee flying around and biting you in the ass, the West will suffer. You know, so the whole theme of evil, which I think in America, we don't like to think that that is something in us, that we are the people who dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, we, the people, dropped more bombs on Vietnam than were dropped in the entire Second World War. We, the people, illegally invaded Iraq. And we are the people. So the concept that evil is something that exists in each one of us, I subscribe to. Well, I think we are facing exactly that conversation right now, this week, next week, the week before. The idea that we can kind of create this dichotomy between those who, who collaborated and supported and those who didn't. But I mean, I keep coming back to the same thing. I've said this a lot on, on this show and others that, you know, the, the reason that police stop black motorists and hassle them and ask them a lot of questions they don't ask white motorists is because we want them to. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying yeah, that absolutely. that I and you want them to, but somehow or other, we want this to happen and we don't want to own that. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. And, you know, when you think of those congressmen and women all huddled together in that room, during the takeover of the Capitol, we know now that many of the Republicans refuse to wear masks, but in not wearing masks, they were endangering and must have known this, the lives of their fellow workers. How could they do that? Right. This is the second time in two days I've talked about that. I was talking to Nicholas Christakis yesterday about it. He's written a book about the pandemic. But yeah, and in fact, at least three Democratic members of Congress have now tested positive for COVID since yeah, that happened. Yeah. So it's not speculation. Uh, it's uh, No, real. that's murder. So I want to just talk. I will circle back to some of this stuff towards the end of the conversation. But well, I mean, one thing that you say in the book, actually, I mean, the, the clip that we played, yeah, it does end with the speculation about death. I think you say in the book that all of your productions since Vanya have been about death. But I, maybe rather than ask you about that, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the process of getting to a production right now. For example, you are in rehearsal, I think, for Heather Gobbler right now with no particular timeline set up for when Hedda Gabler might get on the stage? Oh, well, I didn't have a timeline when I started. Now with COVID, I definitely don't have a timeline. <laughs> yeah, no timeline. You know, people, people think that's radical sometimes mm -hmm. because, as you know, plays are rehearsed in six weeks at the most, not 14 years yes. the way I sometimes do. But we don't think it's strange for somebody to write a great novel that takes 
six or seven years. This is not my memoir. It took seven years to write. That doesn't seem strange. In the theater, it seems strange because the theater is dominated by economic considerations. But if you can find a way around those economic considerations, you can rehearse for as long as you like. Well, I mean, theater is also a little bit different from the act of writing, simply because it is so much more collaborative. There are a lot of people involved. Julianne yeah, Moore yeah. might not be available to rehearse for 14 years. And that's, uh, you know, maybe the other thing that, that militates ag against the process. But on the other hand, there's something kind of thrilling about the idea of saying, well, this is just going to take as long as it takes. Yeah, yeah. You can get some very good work from that. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, you know, obviously a marriage takes many years and a lot of work if you had to decide whether or not it was a good marriage after six weeks forget it <laughs> All right, we're talking to andre gregory right now we have so much to talk to him about uh, his book this is not my memoir so is that title kind of a sissy nipaz and peep kind of magritte thing or or uh, a little bit it's yeah. it's a bit of a joke yeah but not completely I guess where the joke personally comes in for me is I swore that if there was absolutely one thing I would not do as I grew older, it was write a memoir. I would never write a memoir. And I've ended up writing something because a great publishing firm made an offer I couldn't refuse and a great editor. But also, it's not a memoir in the usual sense, in that it's kaleidoscopic in structure. It's not one of those books that said, my great-grandparents came to America in the 18th century, they went to Harvard, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's all over the map. It's all over time. It questions the theme of time itself. And also, I as... as a psychiatrist pointed out to me, it's not a vengeful book. Some memoirs are getting even for something often awful that was done to you. This book, I think, is very forgiving. I, there's a lot I could say about that, too, but I think we're going to take a break. But as we go into the break, let's, in fact, play a little bit of one of the acting roles that you do look back on with some pride, and that is from A Last Temptation of Christ, where you play John the Baptist. You'll hear Willem Dafoe as Jesus, and we'll come back after this break. Who are you? Do you recognize me? Who are you? Do you know the prophets? What does Isaiah say? He says, prepare the way of the Lord. Are you telling me that's you? I don't know. Tell me. Why are you here? To be baptized. No, no. I don't dare. If you're the master, then you have to baptize me. Baptize me.
So, how do you survive without women? An easy answer. The foolish ones go with women on the sly. The wise ones long ago understood the degree to which sex as a source of pleasure is overvalued in our society. Your Holiness, with a few words, you have just raised to the ground three quarters of my literary production. I've almost always written about sex as the motor that drives the world. And you were right, but you don't write about motors that purr. You write about motors that break down continuously. Have you ever had a girlfriend, Your Holiness? Certainly. I've only ever had one, and I remember everything about her, whereas you, Mr. Cohen, have probably had thousands and don't remember a thing about them. I only remember certain perverse and lustful details. If you remember those, that's probably because we're continually lecturing you about how wrong it is to remember them. All right, that's Andre Gregory with Jude Law in The Young Pope. There's so many ways that we could go from there. I mean, we're not going to have time to talk about all the really fascinating acting experiences that you've had until recently. Andre Gregory was the only person who'd ever killed Harrison Ford in a movie. A distinction, you know, you, know, you, know, you no longer hold that distinction. But um, I guess maybe we should talk a little bit about your your introduction to acting, the, your introduction to theater. You talk about it as something that really begins when you're very young, and it does to the point of the clip we just played, involve a girl. Her name is Patsy Cavendish. Tell us who Patsy Cavendish was and what she has to do with your ascent or descent into the world of theater. Well, I went to a very elegant waspy school, and she was the daughter of uh, the head of the school board. Uh, and I think I was punished you can read the whole story in the book. I mean, it was awful. It was the great trauma of my childhood. I was punished for doing something I hadn't done. Ever since, I've loved books like Eric Ambler's, I think it's Journey Out, about somebody who's suddenly being hunted for something they never did. But they took everything away from me, the school. They were anti-Semitic. I was one of only three Jews in the school. But the one thing they could not take away from me, was simply too late, uh, was the school play, the Christmas play. I was playing Petruchio, and no kid could have learned <laughs> that role, you know, in a matter of weeks. It had taken me the whole year to learn that part. And when I went on stage, terrified that I was facing this audience that had made me into a pariah. I looked at these sons of bitches who crucified me and I was filled with rage and I was able to fit the action to the word. Without any training, I knew how to put my feelings into the text and I knew how to act. And ever since, acting and theater have been like a drug of choice. In the book, of course, I, I do talk about the negative effects of a drug of choice. But mm -hmm. that's how it began. And uh, Patsy Cavendish was the young girl that I'd written innocent poems to and was accused of doing something 
obviously sexual, even though I was so young, I didn't know what something sexual would be. So I have to say that in some ways in the book, my favorite character, and I sort of put quotation marks around it, is your father. Mm-hmm. He, he's such a complicated person. You you say that you think he may have been a Nazi collaborator. There's this stunning scene years after the war in the 50s, I believe, when you and your family are back in Paris at a restaurant and suddenly your father disappears. Just quickly tell that story. It's a, a startling thing. Well, we, we were having dinner at a restaurant, a nice restaurant in Paris. And the head waiter came over and said there was somebody who wanted to see my father. He got up went to the lobby and never appeared again. He'd been arrested. I don't want to spoil, be a spoiler because it's quite a thrilling story, I think, in the book. But um, he had been arrested by the French police and kept incommunicado. We couldn't find him, probably because of his collaboration with the Nazis. So, you know, so on, on uh, we have that on the one hand. On the other hand, I, I think particularly towards the end of his life, and, and you and he, I, I think, don't agree for a lot of your lives together about what a good way is to spend your time and your life and your efforts. But there's just this remarkable set of, of exchanges near the end. And one of them involves a 1920s Art Deco pocket watch uh, that the two of you are discussing, and you're discussing some possible inscription that could be put on the back of it. Do you want to tell that story really quickly? Sure. Uh, he was he was dying, and I was opening in a new play. I, I knew we didn't have much time together, and um, I hated the thought that we were going to end up enemies and I asked him if uh, he could give me as an opening night gift a beautiful pocket watch I'd seen at Cartier's the watch from the 20s and he said but you already have a watch what do you need another watch for and I said well if you gave me this watch I could put an inscription from you on the watch he thought for a moment And then this man who spoke six languages badly said to me, put on it, what a pity we let the time go by. But that's so sad, I said. No, he said, it's the truth. The truth is neither happy nor sad. It's just the truth. And those were his dying words to me, which were... (laughs) a lot sweeter than my mother's dying words to me. Well, your mother is another fascinating character in this book. Maybe we should at least give her a little bit of airtime. You you can pick your own story about your mother if you want. The one that kind of stayed with me. First of all, I want to say that those words from your father about the truth is neither happy nor sad. Uh, It's just the truth. I'm not sure that I entirely agree with them, but they certainly jumped off the page at me and burned themselves into my eye sockets. The story about your mother that probably jumps out at me is the one where she's admiring a baby in a baby carriage. I don't know if that's the story you want to tell. Maybe you have a better one. Oh, yeah. She was coming back from a holiday to an elegant hotel in Switzerland, and there was a baby carriage with a rather lovely baby in it. And she was kind of, ooing and eyeing over this 
baby. And the governor said, but madam, he's yours. <laughs> so, so, yeah, she was she wasn't she wasn't a great mother. But on the other hand, women of her generation often weren't, you know, women of her generation were for the most part in a terrible spot. They were dependent on husbands who they often didn't love. They, it was very hard for a woman to make a living. They had children, not because they wanted children, but because they thought they ought to. And then once they'd had the children, she didn't know what to do with them, you know? So it was a tragic generation of women to which she belonged. And I think, I think that something that's nice in the book is it does portray her as a kind of Lady Macbeth. But at the same time, I find forgiveness for her. I don't have an axe to grind. Yeah, I wrote a memoir about my father, and that's kind of the premise that I started with, that uh, mm-hmm. my, if my mm-hmm. heart were pure, if my intentions were good, I could kind of write good. anything. <laughs> so, but, so just before we get to the next break, I mean, you know, this kind of circles me back anyway to something we were talking about earlier. You know, most religious traditions do have some sort of version of the Edenic fall, that, you know, we start with something perfect, and then the egg cracks, the vase, uh, you know, ha- has a flaw, something goes wrong and is difficult to repair. And, but that one of the things that we do is we sing and we dance and we write poetry and we paint and we create, constantly trying to mend, to heal that crack in the egg. But the crack's also in us, too. I mean, reading your book, I'm sort of thinking, well, without some of the stuff that he's describing, there's no way he has that compulsion to go into theater and create the way he creates. Is that the way it looks to you? Yeah, it it is. And, you know, in relation to that, I tell some harrowing and funny stories about people around me. But at the same time, I find compassion for them, forgiveness. And I think, I think especially now in COVID time, everyone is so confused and so desperate that it's a great thing to simply do something as small as to smile at a stranger and say hello with warmth. I like that. And that's a good place to end this segment. We'll have one more segment with Andre Gregory. I feel like we're just scratching the, oh, we're going to go out. (laughs) We're going to go out with a clip from a movie that I really like a lot, but I don't think you do. But it's one of your performances. It's a performance in the movie, Demolition Man. I think the clip will just speak for itself. Mr. Simon Phoenix, one of our first and most illustrious members. Allow me to welcome you to your parole hearing. Let's get this one over quick. 29 years ago, the parole system as you know it was rendered obsolete. Federal statute 537-29. Stop it! Do you have anything fresh to say on your behalf? I thought not. Yeah. 
I do. Teddy bear. The Lord sent me here, Mr. Fox. That's what I love about you people, your complete lack of presumption. The Lord hasn't any idea this place exists. If he did, he would have done something for these people a long time ago, but he didn't, I did. Ali. This river doesn't belong to you, brother. Nor to you, but this place belongs to me, and I didn't give you permission to come ashore. This man cannot speak for you, good folk. The Lord is your father. I'm a fair man. If any of you want to go listen to this man across the Geronimo state line, I won't stop you. Any takers? <laughs> and Pharaoh said, and Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let you Israel, go! I know not the Lord. Neither will I let Israel go. Exodus 5. Now get off my land. We're talking to Andre Gregory, the wonderful actor, writer, director, teacher, painter, and his new book is This Is Not My Memoir. Before we go further, I have to thank several people. One of them is Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio making sure everything happens the way it's supposed to happen and also making it possible for me to work remotely in this time of COVID and for the producer of this episode, Jonathan McPants, to do the same. So thanks to both of them. Thanks to you for listening. We have a little bit more time left. Andre Gregory, I, I, I don't even know. It's sort of like one of those boxes of mixed chocolates. I don't really know which one to pull out, which bonbon, but but maybe just oh, talk about- Oh, the dark chocolate with caramel. <laughs> yeah, but then it does a number, it pulls some filling loose or something. So let's, let's talk a little, there's so much in My Dinner with Andre, so much in this book about spiritual questing. The other thing that you've done besides create art and, and, and love people is try to find something, some higher truth. And so we get a lot of that in my dinner with Andre. We get it in this book too. There seem to be so many instances of you going to some far-flung locale and there's a, you know, a Rinpoche kind of person there who, who takes you to the window in the early afternoon, but the sky is dark and comets are flying by and you're laughing and you're crying. And I'm very envious of all that. I'm envious of you having the courage and, and intrepidness to go seek out those experiences. But I guess I'm wondering, do, do they land you in any particular place or do they just become part of the fabric of, of your own existence? In other words, I don't, do you get answers or is the quest everything? No, I think the quest is everything. You know, it's like, falling in love, uh, it doesn't necessarily take you anywhere, but the fact that you have known love stays in your system forever. So once you've had one of these extraordinary spiritual experiences, it doesn't necessarily land you anywhere, but it is a part of who you are now forever. 
I also wonder when I read about these things, and I think when people tend to write about these things, you obviously you you when you write about it, you go for the big moments, the things that really are epiphanic or in some way, you know, out of the ordinary. But I also feel as though there's a lot of monotony and routine and sitting really quietly in waiting rooms or, you know, I mean, there's sort of that, I, I sense that one of the things that, that as I read it and thinking, well, I wish I was Andre Gregory and I'd had that experience. I'm kind of discounting a certain amount of drudgery that goes up to that point of the thrilling, enlightening experience. Yes, work, work, work. <laughs> you know, that joke about how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. There is a lot of work and patience and perseverance, not just in the spiritual path, but also in the creative path, and even, let's face it, when you look at Georgia, in the political path. So it's all important. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's sort of the chop wood, carry water part of all of this, whether you're talking about yeah, re religion yeah. or politics and, and being very present in, in that process. Well, we're running out of time here. And I, I do feel like we should, we should circle back to politics somehow and, and, but also make it as colorful as we possibly can. So not only were you the first person ever to kill Harrison Ford in a movie, but you also uh, were perhaps one of many people, uh, for all I know, to get punched out in real life by Gregory Peck. Although I worked with Gregory Peck one time, and he, he was much later in his life, and he was a very nice and gentle person. But you really... Oh, I think he was. Yeah. I think I drove him to distraction. <laughs> uh, if you read the book, you'll realize what an impossible, difficult, ornery human being I was when I was young. And I think if I had met me in the street, I might have punched me out. So I don't blame him. Right. You were an enfant terrible at that point, And that's one possible I response sure was. to that. I, so, but, but you also say that possibly that whole incident, I don't think you're serious, but, and, and on this show, we have this whole theory that everything that's gone wrong for the last 25 years has been caused by Joe Lieberman, but you actually set up this theory. Maybe you're responsible for the entire political drift of America because of that incident with Gregory Peck. Can you, can you construct the ladder that gets you there? No, read the book. Read okay. the book. <laughs> okay, okay, it's so, an amazing story. The yes. fact that I could have contributed in some small way to the downfall of the Soviet Empire uh, and sadly <laughs> to the eventual triumph of Trump is unbelievable. But you'll see it in the story. It's it's an amazing story. So, you know, as we're almost out of time, but not all the way out of time, you know, yes, we're we're about to come out of the Trump era. I should mention once again, as we're having this conversation, we can't be live on the air as we had planned, because, in fact, the, the second impeachment of Donald Trump is unfolding you know, in, in the background right now. And we've had to go to special coverage. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff at the end of the book about what do artists do? in a time of darkness. The day after Donald Trump was elected, we had several guests on. One of them was the Iranian writer Azar Nafisi, and who had some experience also with other kinds of, you know, autocratic regimes. And she right. said something that I can never forget. She said, 
the the way you survive in that situation is you become even more fully yourself than oh, you that's have great. by isn't that great and so it's so she says if you teach you're going to teach more if if you're if you go if you have a garden you're going to garden more creatively and and more fully you're going to throw yourself into whatever it is that you do and become yourself even more and i think that's a little bit there in some of the things that come up at the end of the book stuff that howard zinn said stuff that arundhati mm-hmm. roy said i don't know how do you see the role of people like you for the next year or two Oh, God. (laughs) I don't have the slightest idea. I know that there's something like a civil war or a revolution going on in the United States. I fear that the next four to six to eight years could be very, very troublesome. And I guess, I guess my answer would be to try to love, to try to give love, to try to stay peaceful oneself, and to try to rid the worm of anger out of our own hearts. Other than that, I don't know. Time will tell. Well, maybe I'll close then with a quote which I've actually turned to a few times in my own life before, but you have it near the end of the book. It's a Tennessee Williams who says, the world is violent and mercurial. It will have its way with you. We are saved only by love, love for each other, and the love that we pour into the art that we feel compelled to share, being a parent, being a writer, being a painter, being a friend. We live in a perpetually burning building, and what we must save from it all the time is love. Very true to the spirit of Andre Gregory and Azar Nafisi. Amen. And, and amen. amen. And that's as good a way to land the plane as I can think of, Andre. So thank you so much for joining me today. <laughs> oh, this has been great. You're you're a pleasure to be with. <laughs> I hope one day we'll actually meet. Well, I'm up, I'm up in Truro a lot, so maybe we'll meet on Boston Beach someday. Oh, uh, great. Okay, <laughs> that's a date. All right. Andre Gregory has visited w- with me for the last hour. It's been a thrill. And thank you for listening.